Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Jeanne d'Arc always knew her time with the French army would be short, just one year and not much more. That meant she didn't have long to save her country from the ravages of war, so she had to make every moment count. She pressed forward at every opportunity, sure that God was on her side, even when others around her began to doubt. But whether she really heard messages from God or not, Jeanne got one thing right. She wouldn't ride with the French army forever, and her time was rapidly running out. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we delved into the early life of Jeanne d'Arc and her belief that God wanted her to save France. Around the age of 17, she marched with the nation's army, rode proudly into battle, and took an arrow to the chest. This week, we'll take a look at Jeanne's military victories, explore the path to her tragic fate, and unpack her enduring legacy. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Isn't it bullshit to have to question where your food comes from? At Vital Farms, you can trace your pasture-raised eggs all the way back to the source, the pasture. On the side of each pasture-raised carton of eggs, you'll find the name of the farm where your eggs were laid. And when you look the farm up on their website, you'll get a peek at all the sunshine, fresh air, and open space the hens enjoy. Learn more and find out where to buy them at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit-free. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viori, V-U-O-R-I slash Spotify. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. On May 6, 1429, 17-year-old Jeanne d'Arc thought she was going to die. An arrow from an English soldier struck her above her right breast during a battle in Orléans, France. Jeanne, the spiritual leader of the French forces, fell to the ground and wept. She had known this was coming. In fact, that morning, she had told her men she would be struck down, but she marched into the fight at the Le Augustin Fort anyway. 
Jean believed God would keep her alive, no matter how she was injured. But she didn't realize just how terrifying and painful it would be. While on the ground, Jean pulled out the arrow. Seeing her in distress, a few French soldiers rushed to her side and tried to help her the only way they knew how. The men offered her healing charms. But in Jean's religion, this was unacceptable. Last time we discussed the rudimentary medieval approach to health and medicine. People usually believed that one of two things caused injury or illness, bodily fluids or demonic possession. And acceptable cures included charms, magic spells, exorcisms, and herbs. But Jeanne didn't share those beliefs. She was raised a devout Catholic and believed such methods were witchcraft. So, of course, they went against God's will, and she turned down the men and their spells. Still, she wanted to be healed somehow. The pain of her injury was excruciating, and she needed to get back to the battle. So Jean and the soldiers compromised on a witchcraft-free cure. The men took off her armor and applied two unexpected salves, olive oil and lard. Though this combination might sound odd today, it was actually a go-to treatment for cuts, sores, and bruises in the Middle Ages. In fact, modern research has shown that olive oil does have antifungal and antibacterial properties. Even still, the oil and lard were only a temporary solution, so the French soldiers picked Jeanne up and carried her to the medical quarters, where a surgeon could dress her wound properly. Some sources say that seeing that she was injured, the English forces cheered, excited to have hurt Jeanne, who they believed was a witch. Before we continue with this episode, Psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Suspicions of witchcraft were common in the early 1400s. In a 1978 paper in the Mid-American Review of Sociology, sociologist Marianne Campbell wrote, The church often targeted peasant women, like Jeanne. These women usually worked as midwives or healed others with no training, using techniques that went against the grain. Their methods presented a major threat to the church's own tradition and desire for world domination. So the Christian church employed witch hunters who looked for pagan peasants to execute, terrifying the poor. As a result, many God-fearing Christians were terrified of anyone whose beliefs didn't match their own. England used that paranoia to spread propaganda about Jean. They refused to believe that God would help France instead of England. So they branded Jean a criminal and witch. This suspicion only gained traction when Jean quickly bounced back from her injury. After the surgeon dressed Jean's wound, the 17-year-old rested in her living quarters for a few hours. There, she received two visitors, Saints Catherine and Margaret, two of the angels who first convinced Jean that she was France's savior. But this time, they didn't have specific instructions for her. Instead, their presence reminded her of her holy mission, urging her into action. She once predicted that she'd last only a year in the army, so she knew she couldn't let a bloody gash eat up her precious time. So, Jean stood up, put her armor on, and rode back into the battle. 
The English were disappointed to see that Jean was alive. She marched alongside her soldiers until nightfall, then retreated. The next morning, she returned to the battlefield, encouraging her men to keep fighting for the prize, control of the Loire River, which ran alongside the town. This was a crucial strategic move. Whoever controlled the area around the waterway could receive supplies by boat, a huge advantage. Without access to that, the other side would be forced to retreat. Knowing that, everyone fought hard, refusing to give an inch, until one particular English squadron noticed that the fort they were in might be on the verge of collapse. All 500 men fled, making to cross the thousand-foot-wide Loire River. Noticing the men fleeing, Jean called after them, I have great pity on your soul and the souls of your men. At first, it seemed as if she was just heckling the enemy as usual, one of her favorite pastimes. But soon, her words seemed like a tragic premonition. The English army started crossing over a wooden drawbridge, which was part of the larger bridge system that traversed the river. But just then, a French attack boat became stuck underneath the structure. In the struggle to dislodge it, the vessel caught fire, igniting the drawbridge from below. The flames spread quickly. The seared beams crumbled into ash as the soldiers tried to rush across to safety. But they didn't make it. Their weight caused the drawbridge to collapse into the water, taking with it more men than England could spare. Their heavy armor made it impossible for them to swim back up to the surface, and it's believed that they all drowned. Jean and the French army watched it all unfold from the riverbanks, shocked. They mourned the massive loss of life, but also recognized it as a huge opportunity. For the first time in a long while, they had a chance to win a battle, and they immediately got to work. Jean rallied the French, and they took control of the Les Augustins fort. Then they took back the rest of Orléans. That meant crossing the river to regain control of both sides of the water and be able to push the English out of Orléans. So Jean and the soldiers fixed the drawbridge and marched over. Jean's men fought with a renewed vigor, and by the evening, France had the upper hand. They reclaimed a gatehouse, giving them total control over the river. Suddenly, the English army was backed into a corner with few options left. The next day, Commander Jean de Dunois and his colleagues wanted to press their advantage, attack the English to make sure they'd stay away. But Jean said no. It was Sunday, the Christian Sabbath, so the men listened to her and lowered their weapons. It was a huge moment for Jean, a show of respect for her commands. But in the end, it made no difference. The English were done in Orléans and withdrew their troops from the city. Their forces were weakened, and they were running low on supplies. For that, they placed the blame squarely with one person, Jean d'Arc, the teenage witch. Likewise, the French soldiers also attributed their victory to Jeanne. She was there for all of England's mishaps, and the troops believed she must have had something to do with it. 
As for Jeanne, she believed the victory was God's will. Of course, she enjoyed her new clout among the commanders, but didn't rest on her laurels for long. The English still occupied territory in the Loire Valley. So throughout June of 1429, Jean picked more attacks to help France recover three towns surrounding the river. And this time, de Dunois and the other commanders listened. By mid-June, England was forced to withdraw, leaving the Loire Valley completely in control of the French once again. It might have seemed a miracle to some, but Jean knew it was just the first step in God's plan for her. Now, with several victories under her belt, it was time to tackle the final and most challenging part of her mission. It was time to restore the rightful French king to the throne. Next, Jeanne d'Arc faces her first heartbreaking defeat. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals. Like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Now, back to the story. In June of 1429, 17-year-old Jean d'Arc was ready to implement the final step of God's plan, restore France's rightful king. 
The original heir to the throne, 26-year-old Charles VII, had been disinherited and replaced by England's child king, Henry VI. But Jean refused to accept a new ruler, and she wanted to use French tradition to remake the world to suit her views. You see, in France, kings were always crowned in the city of Reims, and Charles VII hadn't even set foot there. So she decided that she would accompany Henry North and hold a crowning ceremony for him. The only problem was that Reims was occupied by pro-English forces, the Burgundians. It was a daunting thought, but Jean always knew this was going to be the most challenging part of God's mission, and after her success on the battlefield, she had renewed confidence. So on June 24th, Jean met with Charles in the Loire Valley. He was hesitant about making the 225-mile trek north just for the sake of tradition, but Jean assured him that it wouldn't be any ordinary journey. Along the way, they would take back their cities from the English, one by one, until they finally recaptured Reims itself. It was a risky and arrogant plan, but Jean believed that since God approved of the would-be king, he'd weaken the English forces for them. Charles wasn't so sure, though, so Jean offered a prediction to tempt him. She told Charles that as long as he was crowned in Reims, he and the French army would be untouchable. That was something he desperately wanted for his war-torn country, and Jean's predictions had all come true so far. So, hoping for the best, Charles agreed to Jean's plan, and they left with the French army on June 29th. The trip was tense and threw up some surprises. While some cities refused to open their gates, others were unexpectedly welcoming. Even though the Burgundian army claimed these places, the people who actually lived there wanted Charles to be king. So, in yet another miracle, the French army didn't need to attack anyone. The weeks-long expedition became known as the Bloodless March, and on July 16, 1429, the citizens of Reims welcomed Charles with open arms. As he rode in, crowds of people chanted, Noel, which is the French word for Christmas, but was also used to celebrate good news. In the middle of the celebration, Charles' chancellors started making hasty arrangements for his crowning ceremony. They were scared the English might just drop in and ruin everything. The next day, 17-year-old Jean stood alongside Charles in Reims Cathedral. Dressed in her full armor, she held her banner and wept as the archbishop crowned Charles King of France. Trumpets blared and the crowd filled the air with chants of Noel. Jean took this all in, awed by her own achievement. She had completed God's mission. She had once thought the angels gave her impossible tasks, but now she saw that anything could happen with divine support. And because of this, she didn't leave the French army after the coronation. Jean wanted to keep fighting and pursue an ambitious goal of her own. She wanted to take back France's biggest and most prized city, Paris. 
Burgundians had occupied the capital city for over a decade, but now Jean's victories had shaken the English forces. After years in control, their confidence was crumbling, and Jean wanted to take advantage of that. But King Charles didn't see things the same way. He disliked war and preferred to negotiate peace with the English. So the new king and the Burgundian leader, Philip, agreed to a 15-day truce, which was supposed to end with Paris surrendered back to the French. But Jean didn't believe that the Burgundians would just hand over Paris, and yet she didn't want to disrespect her king. She wouldn't have been able to complete God's mission without Charles' support, so she accepted his decision and waited it out for the two weeks. Unfortunately, Jean was right. The Burgundians had no intention of surrendering Paris, and they used the time to regroup and recharge. They strengthened the city walls and prepared to fight even harder. In August of 1429, the truce ended, Paris remained under English control, and Charles was humiliated. As for the armies, both sides danced around each other for weeks, seeing who might strike first. No one wanted to make the first move, except for Jean. All of this beating around the bush made her blood boil. She had predicted that she would only be in the army for a year, and four months had already passed. The French had won the Battle of Orléans, but they weren't any closer to winning the war. She was running short on time and patience. If she was going to beat the English, she needed to start doing it now. A month later, Charles finally felt the same way. By early September, the king agreed. They couldn't hold back any longer. Jean and the French army attacked Paris's Saint-Denis region, but it was far more than Jean bargained for. When the French army reached Saint-Denis, they faced a deep moat and 30-foot walls. Cannons, arrows, and stones rained down from the barrier, but Jean still cheered on her men as they used wooden planks to build a walkway across the water. They didn't make it very far, and by the evening, the French soldiers were exhausted. Frustrated, Jean approached the wall and shouted at the Burgundians, demanding that they surrender before nightfall. If they didn't, she promised they would all die. In response, the Burgundians showed they weren't scared of a ranting teenager. They called Jean names, and for good measure, they fired a crossbow at her. A jolt pierced Jean's thigh, and she fell to the ground. But this time, she wasn't scared. She had survived her wound in Orléans and knew she could persevere through this one. In fact, far from being scared, Jean was angry. She yelled at her own soldiers, commanding them to attack Paris. God was on France's side, she told them, but they needed to fight to win. However, France's retreat signal drowned out her screams. The squadron fled the area, and some men dragged Jeanne away from the wall while she was still shouting. Back at camp, a medic cared for Jean's wound. Then she turned in for the night. While Jean tried to sleep, King Charles weighed his options. 
The assault on Paris had been a disaster. He couldn't afford another one like it. A full-out assault on the city would require more soldiers, more weapons, more money. But his finances were tapped out. He couldn't afford to wait for God to work another miracle through a reckless teenage girl. He needed to buy himself time to rebuild French forces. So he agreed to a three-month truce with the Burgundians until Christmas. As part of the terms, Charles also surrendered control of a few of his towns. When Jean heard about the truce, she was horrified. But despite her protests, Charles' bankruptcy trumped Jean's holy mission, so she reluctantly returned to the Loire Valley with Charles and his counselors. By this stage, the king's closest advisors wanted nothing to do with Jean. They thought she was too impulsive and aggressive, an accusation often leveled at strong women throughout history. Sociologist Marianne Cooper wrote in the Harvard Business Review that when women become successful, they're perceived as less likable. These women get labeled, quote, abrasive and difficult for being direct and decisive, the very traits that made them successful in the first place. But those qualities don't fit into society's antiquated gender norms, which expect women to be nurturing, soft-spoken, compassionate, and nothing to the contrary. Modern women face this blatant sexism all the time, and unfortunately, Jean's experience of it was likely even more pronounced. Charles' advisors did their best to keep her away from Charles for the next few months and gave her duties they deemed better suited for a girl, like giving out food and asking for donations for the war effort. Still, Charles celebrated Jean publicly. On December 29, 1429, he awarded a title to her family as a reward for her achievements. But while she appreciated the honor, Jeanne didn't care about social rank. She wanted to get back to fighting. That wouldn't happen right away, though. Soon after Jeanne's ceremony, Charles and the Burgundians extended the truce until after Easter in March 1430. Jeanne was getting impatient. Her time was running out. So she made herself a promise. Whenever the peace ended, she vowed to be somewhere near Paris. She was determined to take back France's capital, no matter the cost. Up next, Jeanne d'Arc's closest allies abandon her when she needs them the most. For a limited time, Outback Steakhouse has a new three-course meal called the Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. With so many mouth-watering options, the Aussie, Aussie, Aussie is a deal worth celebrating. With soup or salad, five bold and flavorful entrees to choose from, and a New York-style cheesecake for dessert. New York? That's not Australian. The Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Three courses starting at just $16.99, available at Outback for a limited time. Outback, no rules, just right. I feel good. Dad, are you singing to your cereal? Yes, I am. Like I knew that I would. No, a dance too? Come on, Ava. Silk almond milk. Starts the morning on a high note. Yow! Songs, dances, and dad jokes. So good. So good. I got you. Silk almond milk. With calcium, vitamins A, D, and E. Feel plenty good. Now back to the story. 
In the winter of 1430, Jean d'Arc waited out a truce between the French and the English in France's Loire Valley. She celebrated her 18th birthday and vowed to be near Paris whenever the war resumed. Unsurprisingly, the truce did little to quell the tensions between French and English forces after decades of war. And France's citizens didn't appreciate being pawns in the game. So frustration started to boil over in Compiègne, a small town located 50 miles north of Paris. Compiègne was one of several towns King Charles VII handed over to the Burgundians in the truce. The town's citizens, however, wanted to stay loyal to the French monarch. They started strengthening their walls and collecting weapons to fight the Burgundians. And Jeanne couldn't wait. Her one-year expiration date with the French army was quickly approaching. But there was just one problem. In mid-April, Jean received another angelic message, but this one was disturbing. The saints didn't predict a victory for the French. No, this was a warning. Jean would be taken prisoner that summer. Naturally, Jean was scared. She begged the angels to do something to save her, but the saints said they couldn't stop it. This was her fate. However, we need to remember that message could have been caused by a mental illness or another sickness. But over time, it seems her illusions evolved from simple war predictions into persecutory delusions. A 2014 study in social psychiatry and psychiatric epidemiology defined this as a belief that others are planning to cause you harm. It's also a severe type of paranoia that may be associated with psychosis and schizophrenia. While it's impossible to know if Jean had either, she did seem to experience some of the typical after-effects of persecutory delusions, anxiety, and depression. She was distressed and terrified for weeks after this vision. To Jean, God had always helped her out of her hopeless moments, but now he seemed to be leading her into her darkest one. Even worse, it seemed to confirm her prediction that she'd only serve one year in the army. That time was almost up. Even still, she didn't tell anyone about what the angels had told her, so everyone was surprised when she withdrew from strategic meetings and stopped talking to the captains. She'd always been so passionately involved. Jean still traveled north with the army, but she wanted nothing to do with fighting anymore. It seemed like she was losing her faith, until one moment made her feel more connected to God than ever. As the story goes, Jeanne ended up in the town of Lagny-sur-Marne with her squadron in late April. One day, a few frantic young girls asked Jeanne to follow them to a church. They needed help, and quickly. Jeanne thought this was a curious request, but enjoyed helping the townspeople, so she obliged. Inside the church, she saw a large angelic statue, and next to it lay a dead baby. The girls explained that the infant died when it was just three days old, before it could be baptized. Because the baby didn't have a christening, it meant that the child wouldn't get into heaven. The baby's distraught mother was hoping for a miracle, and here was Jean, famous for being blessed with God's favor. The mother begged Jean to pray with her and bring the baby back to life for just a minute. 
just long enough to be baptized. This wasn't just a religious request. It was also one that had likely helped the mother come to terms with her baby's death. A 2014 study by sociologists Deborah Carr and Shane Sharp in the Journals of Gerontology stated that those who believe in an afterlife find comfort in knowing their late loved one lives on in heaven. Even if Jean wasn't aware of that, she did see how much this meant to the mother and agreed. She knelt down and prayed with the group. Within minutes, they noticed the infant yawn three times. Immediately, Jean and the others lifted up the baby and poured holy water on its head, welcoming it into the church. And then, when the blessing was complete, the baby died again. At least, so they say. If the story's true, it likely wasn't the phenomenon that Jean and the villagers thought it was. It's possible that the baby moved as a result of rigor mortis, which we now know can cause movements and muscle stiffness several days after death. But for Jean, the event was just the sign she needed to get back to the war. She resumed strategizing and leading her soldiers, unaware that soon she'd enter her final battle. On May 23, 1430, English and Burgundian forces surrounded Compiègne's city walls. Jean hoisted her banner and led her troops to drive back the enemy. But they were outnumbered. Eventually, enemy soldiers surrounded Jean and her squadron, cutting off their escape route. They were trapped. Even if Jean tried to make a run for it, she'd have nowhere to go. A French captain ordered the town's gates closed to prevent an invasion. As her troops tried to flee, the enemy soldiers recognized Jean. They moved in, pointing their weapons at her, approaching slowly, cautiously. When one soldier got close enough, he tugged at her cloak, pulling her off her horse. She stood up. Jean knew the angel's prediction was coming true. She was about to be taken prisoner, but she wanted it to happen peacefully, so she surrendered to a nearby Burgundian captain. He ordered his men to shackle and carry her away as the men rejoiced. Back at the Burgundian camp, their leader, Philip, said that Jean's capture proved that the teenager wasn't acting on behalf of God because the Lord would never let his agent get caught. And if all of her previous victories weren't caused by God, that meant she had to be a witch. While Jean's capture was a boon for the English, it was a nightmare for French morale. The country's citizens were in an uproar over losing Jean, so King Charles's chancellors worked to spin an acceptable narrative. In letters to the masses, they demonized Jean, blaming her capture on the fact that she refused to listen to their advice. King Charles, once Jean's biggest champion, then took a page from Jean's book and claimed he had heard the word of God. In the message, the Almighty said he allowed Jean's capture because she was too prideful. With that, Charles and his chancellors abandoned Jean to her fate, making no attempt to rescue her through ransom or force. The monarch willingly abandoned the very girl who handed him the throne. 
During the summer of 1430, the Burgundians moved Jeanne to several different castles. At each place, she faced repeated attempts by the guards to sexually assault her. Surrounded by enemies, Jeanne kept her eyes open for chances to escape, but found few opportunities. Meanwhile, the saints supposedly spoke to her, telling her not to flee, reminding her that this was her fate. But then Jeanne overheard that the Burgundians had sold her to the English, and she knew she couldn't wait any longer. She was sure the English would treat her even worse than the Burgundians, and they might even kill her. It was now or never. So Jean defied the angels and their messages from God, deciding to take her destiny into her own hands. She climbed onto the ledge of her cell window and leaped from the high tower. But she didn't have the clean landing she hoped for and injured herself. Adding insult to injury, the guards found her immediately and took her back into custody. As she healed, she realized there was little more she could do. By November of 1430, the deal was done. The Burgundians handed Jean to the English in exchange for 10,000 livres tournois. Now she was in the clutches of the people who believed her a witch, people who wanted her dead. Jean was transported to England's military headquarters in Rouen, France. There, authorities scheduled her trial and drafted 12 articles of accusation against her, including charges of heresy and cross-dressing. Jean's charges were very much crimes of the time period. During the Middle Ages, heresy meant that a person held a belief contrary to a commonly accepted truth. In this case, the English were angry that Jean said God favored France over England in their war. The accusation of cross-dressing was also connected to religion. The Bible banned women from wearing men's clothing. To do so went against God. As we discussed last time, Jean was forced to wear men's clothes as a disguise and to discourage rapists from attacking her. But the charges themselves weren't the main focus of the trial. England knew this was much bigger than Jean. The British were looking for a way to make the world doubt the legitimacy of Charles's reign, and Jean's trial was the perfect opportunity. If England found Jean guilty, it would signal to everyone that Charles became king thanks to the help of a convicted criminal. It would prove that England's king, 10-year-old Henry VI, was France's true ruler. So, Jean wasn't just fighting for her own freedom. She was once again battling for France. But this time, she was on her own. When the trial began on January 9, 1431, it didn't look anything like a modern courtroom. Back in the Middle Ages, trials didn't have a jury, attorneys, or prosecutors. Jean's fate was placed in the hands of two judges connected to the church, Bishop Pierre Cochon and a vicar who barely attended the proceedings. So Jean's future was mostly up to Cochon, a pro-English clergyman, and he put her through the ringer. She had to go through many physical exams, including one to verify her virginity yet again. Then she was grilled about her life and her visions. 
Of course, Jean didn't have a lawyer to help her make her case. The 19-year-old just fielded question after question, answering the best she could. But her answers weren't the right ones. The interrogation and trial lasted for five months, and on May 24th, Gauchon convicted Jean and sentenced her to death. Jean was terrified and knew she only had one option left. She had to give the English exactly what they wanted. She broke down and told Cochon that she lied about talking to God and the angels. She even admitted that wearing men's clothing was wrong. But that wasn't enough for Cochon. He wanted it in writing. If Jean signed a document renouncing her claims, they'd let her live and transfer her to a church jail. And for Jean, this was good enough. She just wanted to live. So she scribbled her signature on the document and returned to jail, relieved. But more trouble awaited Jean in prison. Back in her cell, Jean heard the saints' voices again, but this time they were mad. Saint Catherine and Saint Margaret accused her of treason. They said that because Jean denied her visions, the angels considered her damned because God really did send her on a mission. Feeling guilty, she sat in her dress, confused and uncomfortable, and not just because of the accusation. Jean wasn't a fan of dresses, but it was all the English gave her to wear. But the worst was yet to come. Jean told a confidant that one night an English lord came to visit her cell. After some small talk, he tried to sexually assault her. Jean fought him off, but the experience left her shaken. After that, she ditched the dresses and swiped a set of men's clothes. Jean felt safer in men's clothes, less vulnerable. But on May 28th, two high-level clerics chastised Jean for her outfit and reminded her of the pledge she signed. Jean tried to explain, but the men didn't understand. They couldn't. They wanted her to abide by her promise, no excuses. She had no choice but to take back her agreement. She liked wearing men's clothes, and she had visions from God. She was already tired of denying it. The next day, 40 high-ranking clerics and advisors discussed Jean's decision. They decided that she would get no second chances. She was a hopeless cause who needed to be executed. But now, Jean accepted her fate. She didn't want to languish in jail any longer. On the morning of May 30th, guards led Jean from her cell into a cart. She rode through the streets of Rouen, watched by a crowd of people eager to see her final moments. Finally, the cart arrived at a tall wooden pyre, the place where 19-year-old Jean would die. The guards tied her to its tall pillar. Once she was secure, she made one final request. She wanted someone to hold up a cross to her face as she burned. One Englishman agreed to do this, and when everything was ready, authorities lit the base. 
The flames spread across the pyre, moving quickly up the wood. Jean cried Jesus' name over and over again until she fell silent. After the fire burned itself out, the English cleared away the ashes to make sure she didn't use witchcraft to escape. When they found her charred corpse, they finally had confirmation. Jeanne d'Arc was dead. But though her life was short, Jeanne left an enduring legacy that can't be denied. 22 years after she died, France won the Hundred Years' War and recovered most of its cities, including Paris. King Charles, of course, received all the credit. But if Jeanne didn't lead the way in Orléans, things might have ended very differently. And he never forgot that. When the war ended in 1453, Charles granted her a posthumous retrial, which concluded that she was innocent. A martyr. Jean's conviction was overturned two decades too late, but it only helped her legend grow over the years. Ironically, the English court's comprehensive interrogation left a detailed record of Jean's life. Her life, preserved in the trial transcripts, is the most comprehensively documented of any medieval peasant. Today, she remains one of the most famous French commoners in history and an enduring feminist icon. Nearly 400 years later, Pope Benedict XV beatified Jeanne d'Arc, naming her a saint. Even today, there are countless churches around the world named after her, and the places where she lived are considered sacred landmarks. So although One Nation's frightened leaders declared her a criminal, Jeanne's legacy outgrew that idea. Whatever the truth behind her motivations, Jeanne d'Arc endures as a hero who was willing to risk everything for her country and for her faith. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Joan of Arc, amongst the many sources we used, we found Joan of Arc by Helen Castor, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new podcast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who are far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify. <laughs>